The Wheel of Time turns and podcasts come and go. Welcome to Wattcast, a Wheel of Time book and watch club. We are reading through Robert Jordan's epic fantasy series and watching Amazon's Wheel of Time TV show. I'm Caleb Wibble, and with me as usual are Keely Frank. Hello. And Dan Katinsky. Hey, everyone. With Nick returning next week. Uh, you can find us at wattcast.net and support the show at patreon.com slash wattcast. Your support does mean a lot, whether it's monetary or in the form of five-star reviews uh, on Apple Podcasts for your podcast platform of choice, which make an incredible difference in uh, helping other people find the show. And you can find us all at wattcast.net at any time, which I already said, so ignore me. Email us questions, comments, and corrections via contact at wattcast.net and the subject line questions. We'll answer them here on the show. Like for instance, Caleb, why didn't you write the uh, introductory spiel for this week? So you wouldn't just be bumbling around in it, trying to do it from memory. Today, uh, we're continuing our read of book three of the series, The Dragon Reborn, a hefty chunk of chapters 16 to 25 in which Elena, Gwen, and Nynaeve process their dark front hunting mission given to them by the Omerlin seat. Gawain and Galad are trying to figure out what's been going on with Elaine. Nynaeve chases them off. Uh, and as they bring Elaine in on the plan, uh, Elida shows up and uh, she's doing her usual uh, butting her nose in, into everything deal and, and kind of uh, e expressing her, her, um, her anger with Elaine for basically to hear Elida put it, and Varen for that matter, endangering a political relationship that the White Tower has had with Andor for a very, very long time, uh, since like shortly after the Trilock Wars, I think. And we're starting to learn all the, the ramifications of the misadventure that they had last book when they were kidnapped by Leandrin be, uh, to, and, then, and then, you know, sold into slavery to the, to the Shanchan. Beyond what it meant for Egwene, um, and then for for Nynaeve and Elaine, is just having all these ripple effects throughout the tower. I don't know if this is where we learned that, uh, but we but we we have recently learned that the uh, thirteen Black Aja escaped uh, the tower in self-imposed exile. Uh, although we will we will have the speculation later in these chapters from Egwene and Nynaeve that that is too convenient to number and, uh, and too convenient to spread of them and that there are perhaps more still within the tower. Anyway, we move on to the healing of Matt. Finally, the uh, the Omerlin does go through with it. A circle of Aes Sedai led by Swan manage with great difficulty to break Matt's link to the Shatter Logoth dagger. Uh, Matt awakes from strange dreams of Manetherin and is sort of like uh, uh, really, really wasted away, vigorously hungry, gets a visit from the Omerlin seat and the Keeper, learning that he is basically soft imprisoned slash honored guest at the tower until further notice because he's linked to the horn. And they explain the situation that he will remain linked to the horn until he is dead uh and they can't afford that uh, they can't afford that power falling over to the shadow matt is then visited by selene aka Landfear, aka uh the possibly most powerful forsaken who has been all over the place offering offering our taviran uh visions of glory um if they cooperate and she sort of tells uh, she she offers matt uh, the ultimatum to, you know, like, join up with me, work with me and for me, and I'll tell you exactly what's going on and keep you apprised of the situation and what you can get from me. But the Aes Sedai are just going to use you for their own ends, and they're not going to tell you nearly everything. And then Matt sort of uses some of that information he gets from Selene to, uh, to, to dig additional information out of the Omerlin, like the fact that his, his dad came looking for him at the tower 
And he sort of prized that confirmation from the Omerlin, who doesn't mention that Rand's dad, Tam Malthor, was also here. Anyway, moving on to the next set of chapters. Um, whoa, boy, there, there is so much that we learned in the course of these chapters, and so much that seems like it'll have big ripple effects on the plot and what we have learned before. We get answers. We learn from Varen Sedai um, in, in her Brown Aja study about uh, Teleron Riyadh, the world of dreams, and more about Egwene's potential ability as a dreamer. Uh, Varen gives her a list of Black Aja sisters to investigate, the ones who left with Leandrin, but she also gives Egwene uh, this dream, Teleron Riyadh, this, this ring that will allow her to more easily access this world of dreams that is real in its own way and seems to be potentially an alternate dimension or reality tied to the Guidestones in some way, though we're not really sure how. Egwene is summoned uh, in a huge rush for her accepted test. All of a sudden, she goes through her series of tests, like Nynaeve, in which she's confronted with other other lives. Uh, and uh, once again, things go wrong the way they're not supposed to with the test, but much worse this time. And it's, uh, it's, it's Alana who senses something is off with the rings, with the arches, before Egwene even goes in. And the others, especially Elida, kind of shut her down. It's like, this is happening or it's not happening. Elida is not happy about Egwene being raised to, to accept him. Uh, but, but Egwene makes it through and then talks with Alana about what it means to be green Aja and discovering that they are the battle Aja who prepare for Tarmid Gaiden. Um, meanwhile, Matt wakes up, uh, sort of escapes the tower a little bit to explore the tower grounds, finds out he's not getting anywhere off the island. Everyone is under strict instructions not to let him through. He has a duel uh, with uh, with Gawain and Galad, uh, who are overconfident in their swordsmanship uh, abilities, and lose this duel to an extremely sick uh, farmer with a stick, uh, which is humiliating for them. Uh, and we see, sort of see Matt kind of leading on the, this luck of his, but also the skill that he's cultivated from his dad. And... Uh, and potentially some other things going on with, again, like fleeting images of Manether in his mind and, the, and these other voices and identities um, that seem to be pushing their way more strongly into him now. Um, after which, Egwene, Elaine, and Nynaeve uh, investigate the Black Aja further and, uh, and sort of make the conclusions I mentioned earlier, that, that there's something very suspicious about the way that they left, the number that they left. Oh, Another huge piece of information, among others I haven't mentioned uh, so far, we learn in this set of chapters that 13 channelers working with 13 Merdral can forcibly turn another channeler to the shadow against their will. This is like a weakness inherent in being able to channel, that in being opened up to the one power, you are also opened up to the dark one's power in a way that it can... Um, be forced upon you and that you don't have, in that case, the same defense of free will that everyone else in the world has to hear, uh, to hear it told. That, is a, that was a long and meandering summary, but it gets us there. Um, I thought this was a, a really, a really interesting, exciting, and revelatory bunch of chapters. Uh, it's, uh, and we're getting a lot of answers to questions that we had in the first two books, and especially the last one, I think. Keely, why don't we start with your take on these, since uh, you happen to mention in, in the Discord that uh, the, the one of the five sets of chapters in this were your favorite in the whole trilogy so far. So, so what were the what, what jumped out to you in these? Yeah, it was really these later chapters uh, that we are that we just read, where we're really focusing more on Egwene um, and Egwene and getting her potentially more power and um, learning more about what she can do. I love the uh, the the idea that she can manipulate 
earth mm-hmm. um as part of channeling um there's something about that that's just like so satisfying <laughs> that oh, yeah. she can just like create these you know earthquakes or whatever or shoot like rocks out of the ground i really enjoy that um and i like the idea that she is kind of coming into her own a little bit and like getting potentially more information about what she can do um mm-hmm. and that we're just getting more from her perspective because i think you know we've we've said many times that she was just kind of like a background person for a long time yeah um i still can't fucking stand matt so <laughs> <laughs> like of, i wrote down for the chapter where you know he's waking up and celine comes to visit uh-huh. him it's like well you know god damn it celine and then like of course he's not gonna fucking tell anyone that she's walking around like right, right. why would yeah. he he doesn't believe that anyone could ever do anything good in Tarvalon, like they saved his dumbass life and he's still like oh i don't know if i trust these guys like i'm just kind of tired of all of his storylines um but i was kind of confused on a couple different parts so is are are at this point are we kind of supposed to believe that the reason that he's speaking um like the old languages and is saying what he's saying is that supposed Mm -hmm. to be because he blew the horn or are we not sure uh, good question. I think he was having flat. He was having this before he even got the dagger, right? Because in the first book, there remember in right when they leave Two Rivers, uh, or or after Berlon, actually they're getting before Shatter Logoth when they're getting gotcha. chased okay. maybe, in the or the heat. and mm-hmm. you know <laughs> p- hope that people forget about that and that it won't be used against them at some point. It's like, because nobody has ever broken into our storerooms of Tiarangriol, right? Uh, like in, we don't have Black Raja knowing <laughs> yeah. where things are kept yeah. anywhere. So it's like that. That was kind of dumb. <laughs> I forget. Are they? Are they not? They're not able. Not able to destroy it. Is it one of those things? Like they don't know how, um, or that would just like unleash the power in it on on the world. I don't I don't remember if we even I'm not sure. I don't know if they have said that. Right, because oh right, because it's from Egwene's perspective, right? They're they're she's like witnessing the healing along with Nynaeve. Mm-hmm. And uh oh speaking of Egwene coming into her power, she realizes that uh she thinks that she alone could almost hold as much power as all as all is it Five Aes Sedai in the circle, including Swan Sanche, including an Angriol, uh, uh, or a, a Sa Angriol. That's like like a major power booster. And Egwene finds herself thinking, "Oh wow, I could barely hold that much energy without probably burning myself out." And then she and then she's, "Wait a minute, did I just realize I could probably hold as much energy as as the uh, the 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 five linked Aes Sedai what? and this uh, powerful artifact." Um, which, as you said, we get some badass stuff with Egwene in these ones. The like you're talking about the the Earth power that she has sort of realized that she has as a result of the Shan Chan training. Um, God, what the, it is a very cool moment in that um, in her final vision of the rings where she is the Omerlin seat and and gets uh, um, attacked uh, attacked by the Black Aja after Rand is brought to the tower <laughs> and where I mean, she like wakes up in the cell and the, they, the, the, all of them there cannot shield her uh, together. And she's just like pulling the bricks apart of the building and whirling. And there's like fi- her fire swirling around. That is, <laughs> it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty beefy moment for sure. Uh, and you can all, and you can sort of see like, it's, a, it's, it's cool that, that, that uh, they're kind of similar to Nynaeve's visions in a lot of ways. And Kind of, it kind of mixed. All of them focus on rant. Like every single one of her visions is rant centric. 
But uh, she, but the fact that the the real, it seems like the real temptation to walk away from in the last one, like she has these visions of, you know, like the thing she is giving up to return to the present. She's giving up the family she always wanted, the life in the two rivers she al- always wanted. Um, I forget what the second one is offhand. But then in the third, giving up sort of this vision of the power that she can wield, that she could be the Amarlan seat and that she could purge all the black Aja from the tower and just... Clean and wreck house in, in this vendor. It's a pretty cool moment of uh, of of, of, turn, of turning around and give, giving that up to come back out. Yeah, the second one is when um, there was some kind of battle or something, and Rand is like pinned underneath. Right, right. And, and, and Andor she's gonna kill him or not? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. What about you, Dan? What were the the big highlights or takeaways this week? Well, you guys had mentioned with the dream sequence, and I'm, I am glad Egwene's finally getting her moment in the spotlight. We've we've joked a lot about how they've just really pushed her character aside. Uh, I think Nynaeve gets too much of the spotlight all the time, and it was really starting to feel like Egwene was like a lesser version. And I think we're starting mm-hmm. to see some personality develop, some differences there. She's growing into her own, and I'm really liking the way her her direction is. I like the idea of showing what a potential future could be like for her. That was a smart move in terms of her development. Because mm-hmm. I think up to now, it's been hard to really envision where Egwene could grow into. So I think the climax of the last book and this have me really rooting for her and thinking that she's potentially going to be one of my favorite characters out of the, the main cast. Um, I thought we got some really cool visuals. I like that she gets to be a badass. I like that um, Jordan finally lets her like release and kind of show that she is super powerful and has some raw aggressive energy that Nynaeve might not even be capable of or in the same capacity. And I like that they kind of... Sh- he kind of hints at the affiliation she'll have. Um, I do find her anger towards like all of her dreams being rand centric kind of fascinating. That she's just, like fed up with it by the time she exits <laughs> the gate, where it's like she's, she's like, "You keep putting me through this," and it's like I don't know. There's there's some interesting observations there with that, and her almost having to like murder her her old life and her expectations with Rand um, mm-hmm. constantly. Like each dream focuses around her having to like Rand being the obstacle of her having this life outside of him because he keeps getting pulled back in and she either has to be forced to like kill him or let him die and there's this like interesting concept there so i didn't completely hate that they brought rand in every time the first one was kind of boring i thought it was like your stereotypical like this is my life i could have like family and kids and everything it's because we've we've already done this twice Uh, we've done it from rand's perspective in the last book and we did it in the show at the end of season one right uh with the ball yeah we've got in this scenario (laughs) yeah and then like we got we got that with Nynaeve and her one with and I thought my yeah, were yeah. actually a lot more boring than Egwene, but by the second second one was all right, and then the third dream really hooked me for that because I was worried we were going to get some repetition. It was going to be just like the chapters of Nynaeve's, and it was just going to be redundant because it's like we've already gone through this once. Mm-hmm. But he really flipped it on and said, and that last one was just a really cool like alternative reality of what could be like her being the Emerald Sea, like fighting Black Aja, like. Mm-hmm. A lot of tense building there and kind of the sphere of the 13 and the, the Black Aja was like an interesting concept to introduce. And uh, I don't know, there, there's a, a lot more realness to the the Aes Sedai and the characters in the White Tower. I feel like it's starting to really yeah, pull me yeah. in. I'm liking these characters. Like it's finally fleshed out. These characters are getting their own personalities, like everyone in the tower. Um, I actually like the Matt chapters. I know you, you both were kind of voicing some annoyance with Matt. I think he's finally getting justification for not liking any of the parties that are trying to rope him into helping. And they're setting up that. In the past, I was frustrated because he never had good rationales for always being like, I don't want to trust you. I don't want to do this. Like, why are you dragging me along? With his perspective, we finally get this understanding. And I agree with him because I don't like the Aes Sedai or um, I'm spacing on her name right now. Land land uh, slash Selene. Yeah. 
Yeah, so let's be Celine. They both, and he was smart enough to recognize that they're both just trying to use him in some capacity. So I appreciate that he didn't. As much as he's like, oh, it's a beautiful woman with like boobies and everything. It's like I'm like so intimidated by this. He at least was like really smartly able to assess like, hey, they're both just trying to use me. I don't like either of this. I'm going to try to like figure out my own path. That was some growth on Matt's part. And I do think the Aes Sedai, it's an interesting place they're putting him because even though they healed him, he really only is there because they can't let him go anywhere else because if he's captured mm-hmm. and killed right now, he's the he's almost like a lock for the horn and no one else can use it. So if they can just keep him alive, that's pretty much the sole capacity they see for him right now, that he's a blocker to being able to actually activate the horn on like the dark side. Yeah. So, I, I can totally see he's feeling used on either end. And at this point, like, I would be distrustful of both because I, I really don't like a lot of the ways that I said I operate. I think they're very much like the Jedi in Star Wars. And those people yeah, frustrate the yep. hell out of me with their traditions and stubborn, archaic ways of operating. And they're like really sexist way of viewing things and just like the, the way they talk about like gender and sexuality really is just i don't know they talk about but, with men with such disdain except for the green aja and even the green aja it's always this like love capacity they, i don't know <laughs> oh. i don't want to get into a long spiel there but it's this whole like very like objectification in the opposite sense where it's like men are this like lesser inferior creature and it's like the reverse of what we have in current society where it's like they, they view men as this like they're, they're always talking about men as this like lesser inferior like unintelligent thing that needs a leash like there's a whole chapter where they're talking or that the whole phrase where she's like oh like men you can put a leash on them but they're hard to keep on it or all this other stuff it's like it's, yeah, yeah it's kind of a lot of really disgusting mentality around there from all the ajas to some level is that kind of the point? Like I, I have I have seen a lot of arguments written from like closer to when these books came out that that what they are intentionally doing now I think I talked about why I don't think this works before, but that they're trying to flip around the uh, the world structure and stereotypes and show like, hey, this is what women are uh, this is how people treat yeah. w- treat women or this is how sexism works. like this is what it looks like if it were the other way around. Isn't this ridiculous the way that people think about it? And I think I said before, I don't think it really works because this is like the rest of society in this world doesn't really reflect that at all. Like you still have like traditional patriarchy in a lot of places. And exactly. You still, yeah. and you still have it, the it same feels like the ice power, power dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't really trickle down. And, and I, and it, and it only really feels, it only really feels like a subversion or, or something that is a commentary. I guess if you compare it to mid century, fantasy and science fiction in in that way but i don't know that it's doing anything more than dune was already doing in the 60s right like with with the bene gesserit like are they really any different from from the bene gesserit in that sense in the way that they view men as as tools or well and the and you know or and women equally in the in the in the bene gesserit's case it's just every everybody is Honestly, it just feels like Jordan at this point just picked from like a list of stereotypes. Because mm-hmm. even though like, yeah, the, some of the women are like hypersexualizing the men and then also saying like, oh, you have to keep them on a leash and like that stupid bullshit. The men are doing the same. Like yeah, they're, yeah, still, exactly. they're still yeah. doing that every fucking chance they get. Like literally yeah. men gave Perrin a prophecy like fucking stay away from this really gorgeous woman. He's like, why would I stay away from a hot woman? <laughs> Fuck you, that's why. So <laughs> it, it just it feels kind of like, you know, just falling into that lazy stereotype type like kind of traps and then maybe trying to be kind of like. I don't know, like trying to make some kind of commentary, but it's not working because, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a lot of women in power, but everyone views them as not trustworthy and like a raging bitch. So like, right. it yep, doesn't, exactly. yeah. it's not really <laughs> working. 
Um, but yeah. it just sort of winds up yeah. reflect reflecting the like the eighties and eighties pop culture in some ways. It seems like uh, like and just the general attitudes of mm-hmm. it's the same old like men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Like here's all the. <laughs> The, yeah. uh, the the ways to paint paint them as these different different species that just can't understand each other. If only Rand were Rand. here. <laughs> 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 oh my god! Yeah, and well, and back to like Matt the overall kind of like the chapters. I don't. I enjoyed. It felt very much like a Harry Potter or like one of those like high magic high school or just like those moments where I like the dynamic of somebody mm-hmm. coming in who seems weaker and they're getting picked on and there's like these these jocks. I like that scenario. It's such a fun little trope. It's like you have the jocks they're like, oh yeah, we can beat you up and then they win that or have like the underdog has like some kind of secret move or way of operating yeah, and has a little confidence and comes in. I enjoy that dynamic. It doesn't fully feel earned because I don't remember Matt doing a lot of training. And so he's like, oh, my dad was the best with a quarterstaff. I don't remember him doing a lot of actual fighting or that being mentioned before. So it feels a little bit unearned that Matt, I thought he was going to get his ass whooped. So him uh, winning. I, I would go I back to some of those sequences when they leave the two rivers and it's and Lan is training them and he's already like super impressed with their archery skills and, and the fight, the fighting they do with the Trollocs. I th- I think it I think that was set up a lot in 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 that book but but then we but then Matt has spent almost two books of worth of material being yeah. sick sick and delirious and uh, right so it's been it's been a while so he, he looked like a corpse that couldn't do anything so it feels the rebound almost feels yeah, too yeah. soon it's like he's uh-huh. this walking corpse and somehow he best two of like the jockiest like strongest yes um, yeah. trainees for the warriors and like even though he can fun, barely stand like, up just, then just... yeah <laughs> i feel like in the sh- I, i'm sure the show version will and i feel like there's some kind of dark magic being attached to this a little bit like he i don't mm-hmm. know for sure but they've almost made it feel like the dagger has had some lingering effect on him or, or there's like some insidious yeah, yeah. power that he draws from and like they they've definitely hinted at this luck mechanic that matt's been kind of associated with for a long time now uh so there, there's like elements they're playing with there and i feel like the show this is a, a chance for the show to kind of lean into that more and have yeah. more of an obvious like connection to that and he kind of bests them with this ability or dark power he's gained over his travels but i don't know it was fun regardless. I thought it was like uh, like embedding and kind of having the confidence there and getting to do more than just bumble around making stupid jokes or being completely sick is like a refreshing yeah. change for Matt. So I can see some improvement with this character already happening. So hopefully that keeps up a little bit because he's up to this point. There's been no personality that I've, or any moments with Matt that I've actually liked. Mm-hmm. No fingers, <laughs> fingers crossed for some more. Yeah, it was, it was all show, show Matt. Matt. That was good. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, and then the, my last thing I think from the overall like overview of the chapters, it kind of bothers me. I know Celine is supposed to be super powerful. It's kind of mm-hmm. bothering me that she's just chilling in the White Tower and nobody's like her power aura. I don't know. I'm so used to shows having like auras or like mm-hmm. you can sense dark or positive energy from the other magic wielders. It feels very bizarre to me that she's just chilling in the White Tower and like wandering around, like talking to people and interacting. And somehow the Emerlin seat can't, or like any of the powerful Aja can't sense this at all. She's but she to, knows like, she knows how to shield it, yeah, to ma- to mask it. They, she talks. It about seems that super hard to be shielding it within like the headquarters of like she's just like walking around and like lolly yeah. lolly. I'm going to be like affecting things from in the tower, and everyone's on high alert. So the fact mm-hmm. she's able to do this just feels very well. She she to me. we had her lines, but she really does think of them as children, like who barely know how to use the one power and are just like have no idea what they're doing. She doesn't. She thinks uh, like she's that's she gets so is angry. Her power level that, is that her her power level that much? Is there is the chasm between 
her and the Aes Sedai that large, though? I think maybe not just the well. If, you know, I think she she's very arrogant. So there's her perspective in there, but it's also the the knowledge chasm that it, that is huge. Like the things that she knows how to do that they have that they have long lost and haven't haven't had a clue. She's she's alluded to that. And the Aes Sedai are always alluding to that. Well, we've lost this ability. We've lost, nobody's been able to do this since you know the Age of Legends or before the Trollock Wars. Like they don't even know how to make uh, anything. Like they don't know how to make Tear Angriol or Angriol or Sangriol, which used to just be like a commonplace uh, thing for them. And, and, you know, we've seen before Lanfear comes from the time when people were flying spaceships around, like in the hyper, hyper futurist cities. Right. So she, she sort That's of has fair. that, she has that sort of arrogant, Oh, these are just like primitives uh, kind, kind of attitude go, going to them as well. Uh, she sees that, herself. That makes as, a lot more sense. And yeah, the, the, I forgot about the sci-fi aspect that she comes from more of like a future state of the world and that it's been re- reset to a more primitive, like medieval fantasy era. And the tower we even get from Egwene's perspective mentioning is like increasingly empty, all these halls and all these rooms that used to be full of Aes Sedai, that they're just so far under capacity with their diminishing numbers. It has almost that like, you know, people playing around in a ruin kind of kind of feel you could see for, for someone like Lanfear coming back to it. That's Speaking awful. of Egwene, like uh, sitting here thinking about like what also did I like so much? I like that the third kind of like thingy that she had to go through, the third arch, she realized as the Amarlan seat that she was green. Like she would have been green Aja. So then when yeah, she comes yeah. out and there's a green Aja near her, she's like, tell me about being green. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh shit, well, we're the fighters. Like, in my head, Egwene is just like finally be like going to reach her full potential as like the um way overpowered hedge witch that everyone is super duper scared of. Like mm-hmm. I love this idea that she will become that person that's like, you know, rumored that she's got her own shack in the woods and like she does all these crazy things and like she's fucking powerful, can manipulate the earth, and like I love that idea. Um, so maybe that's also why I'm enjoying her so much. But also I as much as I hate dream sequences, I really mm-hmm. love this idea that they've introduced of how, you know, there's potentially there's all of these different worlds mm-hmm. kind of universes happening at the same time, but within them is like one dream universe. And yeah, so that connects them all overlapping. Yeah. And so they're thinking that all of the um uh the Terangriol and stuff that Leandrin stole mm-hmm. have to do with like accessing that universe mm. or whatever like that's what they were hinting at um and then it was like so convenient then that everything i forget what they were talking about but it, it was just like oh last studied by the last dreamwalker last studied by this last dream yeah person. yeah so they're like, all, all the okay. same person yeah it's like okay i can get on board with something that's so like way far out there like that because when they were describing the different universes was it um Varen that was describing them to yeah she, she gives us a lot more concrete yeah. information like the fact that i don't think we knew before we had questions about this in book two in the guidestones that apparently there's only one creator and only one dark one no matter what and they're the constants in every reality and everything else is different yeah and so like if the if the dark one gets out of prison in one universe, like mm. he gets out in all of them. And I kind yeah, of, I yeah. felt like Egwene in that situation where she was kind of like, are you fucking sure? That doesn't make fucking sense. <laughs> like, I, I like a lot of it feels like too convenient. Like, of mm-hmm. course that's how it works. I mean, uh, like that shit's going to happen. It's a fantasy, but I, I think I'm appreciating more that like, she is questioning shit and like taking, taking note of things and like realizing that like, this stuff is way more complex than I think any of yeah. them realized. And so 
I like that it's now become this almost like Egwene is almost like this Nancy Drew character where mm-hmm. she's trying to like figure out like, well, why does this person have this motive? Why did they say that? Why did they do that? Um, so yeah, I'm just really liking her. Yeah, it's making her a, a more wise character. It's yeah, it's causing her to be more self-aware and also assessing why others are doing the things they're doing, which is something a lot of these characters, like the primary like teen cast, hasn't been doing. So it's nice that it's like learning like to assess mm-hmm. why people are asking things of you or what they're telling you might not be all the facts and it's like this gradual learning process with her it's also making her a little more paranoid so that has like ramifications down the road but it's interesting seeing her thought process grow and her becoming wise and, and catching up to Nynaeve in terms of the way she's mm-hmm. almost viewing situations more intelligently now than the wisdom has been and that's interesting to me because up to this point I think she's always viewed herself as a child always yeah, followed yeah. Nynaeve's footsteps and now she's recognizing Nynaeve has a lot of negative traits as well with like her anger and constant like jumping to conclusions or being very like brash or things it's like Nynaeve has that those traits and Egwene doesn't so there's a lot of capacity for her to grow into a better leader than Nynaeve is in Mm. some regards because she's more level-headed she even like calls out the fact that Nynaeve can only channel when she's angry (laughs) and she's like you're going to use that in the dream world (laughs) like I can actually channel when I'm like level-headed and everything so that's a a fascinating contrast there where it's like Egwene has room to catch up or match or maybe even surpass current state of Nynaeve even though Nynaeve has been prophesied as like the more powerful one overall so I, don't know, I like that they're finally catching her up <laughs> and like Nynaeve I, it's hardly even commented on because so much is happening she remembers everything that happened in the in the arches which you're not supposed to be able to and she was able to channel it there which you're not supposed to be able to and we're already seeing her like retaining that information using it uh, yeah. in, in both like what she can learn from there and seeing that I feel like her values are splitting off from Nynaeve in a big way where like especially when Nynaeve comforts them her and Elaine who are both like traumatized by the arches and he's like there there don't worry we'll get our revenge on the Aes Sedai which is just like not where Egwene is at this point and Egwene is already like examining her alliances her institute her beliefs her the way she feels the world should be and setting up her own worldview and plans for the future and like starting to weigh these things and you can see her thinking okay there is potential here there's this value in the white tower this corruption is ruining it it can be rooted out there is yeah and you start to see her like and naive going off onto really different paths in some ways yeah and like i feel like like i mean she's always been a naive shadow and so i think with all of this shit happening with them doing extra testing on her for mm-hmm. the dream stuff and then Varen giving her that um, the dream Terangriel or whatever, uh, she's realizing like, hey, you know, I can be trusted with shit. Like I have value. Yeah. So, so I love that she kind of fought back against Nynaeve when she was like, oh, well, I guess I'll take that. You know, the thing that was given to you fucking <laughs> yeah. specifically, I'm just older and I should take it and have it. And Nynaeve was like, what the fuck are you going to do if you lose your shit? Like, you know, <laughs> like you need to calm mm-hmm. down. So. I feel like it's kind of, you know, we laugh so much about that meme of, of you know, everyone being super powerful, not, <laughs> not you. <laughs> it's like, maybe you, though, like, maybe you've been the underdog this whole time. And I kind of, I like that, that she's, like, coming into her own in so many ways and questioning shit. I love when people start questioning shit of, like, well, you know, is there, like, why am I actually following with everything Nynaeve says? Is everyone as horrible and untrustworthy mm-hmm. as she says they are? Maybe she has a fucking personality disorder and I need to, like, cope on my own. So I'm just really enjoying, you know, all of this. But so she had that ring in her mm-hmm. shit when she was going through the arches. And then 
something happened where like was I forget the the name of the green Alana. I don't Gwen yeah. didn't take the ring in though. She left it with her. No, but yeah, like she clothes, left it right? in the room. And so yeah, when she yeah. comes into the room, then that's when Alana's like oh. something's weird. So I thought weren't didn't oh. they say before about the ring that like this this has happened one time before or something and there was some kind of connection with the hungry all together, yeah. Yeah. I didn't so I, I didn't make that like, connection. Oh. That's what I was wondering, like, is it because of whatever this is? Was it uh-huh. trying to throw her into the dream world or something? Mm. And that's why they could, like, feel the arches collapsing or something. Wow. Like, I don't know if that's what it was. That's what I hope it was. <laughs> but I'm not sure. That's a good no, they, Yeah. Yeah, they had mentioned that, too. So they said the only other time this had happened, two Tiangriel were in the same room at the time. So I think the issue was Egwene wasn't supposed to have the Tiangriel with her. And they forced mm-hmm. her to do that before she go go back or change or put anything down. So she had the papers and the ring. Mm-hmm. And those were, they've strongly implied those were activating together. And I think they even make a comment about the ring heating up or something. But they're mm-hmm. saying the Tiangriel melted when the two were together yeah, and activated, yeah. like when the gates were activated. So it's like, it was, they were strongly implying that they didn't realize why. And like, what's the name of the green Aja that was going to punish herself doing the dishes? She was like all Alana, up, yeah. up in arms. Alana, yeah. Alana was like worried about it, thinking it was her fault and everything. And then that was when Aguina and they're explaining what had happened. The only other time it happened, that's when Aguina, I think, mm-hmm. put together the two and two that it was like her fault that that had happened. So she was like really trying to brush it off and on top of not wanting to be like monitored at all. She, I think she realized then that that connection probably had messed up the portal. Yeah, because if you've got these rings that transport you to alternate worlds or, or realities, which at this point I, I am pretty thoroughly convinced that's what that's what this does. I, 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 like they seem to be literal. Like th- this pa- takes you to the parallel world where you have the thing that is hardest for you to leave behind or something like that. And then you're, and then if the dream world is what connects all those and the ring brings you into the dream world and you're trying to, and you start and you go and bring that inside the rings, it does feel like you're doing like a whole paradox, like, like rip a hole in reality. Like you're bringing the world that connects the world inside the worlds that's supposed to be outside. Yeah. It's a feedback loop. That makes sense. I did not put those things together at all. That is a really good explanation for the meltdown. I was wondering what was, what was causing it. And yeah, completely missed that. It's the it's the ring resonating. And so I assume uh, I assume that we're gonna find out in the next few chapters about how it's supposed to work. Because like I'm really hoping that it's gonna be like you just have to be near the ring mm-hmm. to do the dream thing and not not that it's going to literally be like the one ring where you wear it and then now all of a sudden you're gone because you're in another you know, no one can see you, yeah, but in yeah. this it's that you're, you know, in this dream world. So I'm hoping that that there will be more to it than just a simple like, well, you put it on and then when you mm-hmm. take it off, it's over. Like, I hope that it's not. Also, thinking about that. So Varen's office, fucking love the description of her office. Of, yeah. like, shit being <laughs> everywhere. And, like, she immediately loses, you know, shit in papers. She said <laughs> she said the Dark One's name, didn't she? She just, like, sat there and said Balsamon. Is that oh. is that, like, his actual name? Or is no, that that's another the, fucking nickname? That's the one that's okay. That's okay-ish to say. <gasps> yeah. The, so the, what the, is his actual name? <laughs> Shayatan. Shayatan. It's the, oh, it's the Shayatan. fucking... Yeah satan ripoff okay that's yeah, yeah, yeah i wrote that down i was like did she just say his fucking name and no one said anything because i couldn't they gave him like 15 different names so it's hard uh-huh. to keep track of balsamon is his trollock name that's like the lord gotcha. heart of the dark or something okay. like that or lord father of lies is also in in there um god yeah, was anyone something. else to, oh sorry no no go ahead was anyone else excited slash i mean it's a very brief description but they almost make it sound like a green flies at the end of her last trial. Oh, does she? 
So yeah. I thought that was a pretty cool description because it sounds like she just draws this raw energy because she's uh-huh. like, it, it manifests on top. It slanted. So I was like visualizing this because it says the archway. Wait, it said, um, uh, where was it? They're on top of the, or, or on the tower top tilted to sit flat against the sloping tile. So it's like, it's kind mm-hmm. of tilted. It's not like a flat archway. So it's like, she's staring up at it. It's on top of the, the tiles of the tower and she can like see into it because it's like perpendicular to the tiles. Cause they're saying it's, sit- it was like mm-hmm. sitting straight up on them. And then she, she sees that and it's like rippling there. And then it's like with a scream of rage of, uh, rage of loss, Egwene threw herself at the arts as it uh, shimmered like a mm-hmm. uh, heated haze. She almost much wish she would have missed and plunged to her death implying that she like flew up there though or like was like flying up so i was like oh is she like doing a giant like jedi leap or is she like flying to the archway to get through it and did she achieve that power by the time she became like the emerald emerald seat so i don't know i thought that was pretty interesting i was like hmm. is she flying at the end of her vision is that showing like the last glimpse of her raw power she has in this like adult state i don't know it's it's hard it's like um, there's a lot going on visually in that passage out on the rooftops and i, I sort of just pictured her jumping from one set of roof tiles to another but yeah oh downwards oh it's so is she when she comes out is she at the top of the tower because i thought she was down in the courtyard at the end of the courtyard or is she staring down at the procession i think it was hard for me geographically to place it because i thought she had Mm -hmm. entered the courtyard and then was staring up but you're right she might have been in a tower yeah she climbs up and climbs out onto a sloping tower top is looking over a court like the the trader's court where they where they do the the gentling. Oh, so she might have been jumping down. I was like visualizing it. She had looked up or something. There's okay. So depending on the angle, I could have misinterpreted it. And she's like plunged to her death. So, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, you're describing that. It sounds like she saw it on a lower level of the roof and then jumped into it. And she was wishing she had like missed it almost. Yeah, that's a good catch though, because you know, no matter what happened, I think it goes to show like how fucking chaotic that scene was. That all yeah, of us yeah. are like, wait, what the fuck just happened? Because I totally like I. I felt just like anxiety reading that. I didn't necessarily pay attention to like mm-hmm. where she was in the mix of everything else. So like you saying like reading where she's like, oh, I wish I would have plunged to my death. Like that's like the first time my brain is registering like, well, why the fuck would she have plunged to her death if she just walked through it? So that, yeah, that's a good catch. We also get mentioned in several times in these chapters, including in this dream about uh, Balefire. Like and people bringing it up as yeah. this like really Balefire. dangerous power, and one of the Terrangarial stolen by the Black Aja produces Balefire, whatever that is, and everybody seems terrified of it. Um, and there's like all and these like underlined warnings. She can do Balefire though, and she doesn't. Yeah. she she's her. It's interesting because she's like, oh, I can do Balefire. It would destroy too much of this courtyard or whatever. Yeah, um, <laughs> they they've already assessed that she's going to be able to learn it, which is pretty awesome. And now she like has that knowledge and she's like, Oh look, mm. another mention of Bellfire. I don't know what this is, but I know I could do this when I was in the seat. And something else she knows. She knows there is a world where she becomes Amarlin's seat without swearing on the oath rod. And it's the secret oh, that yeah. she reveals to her keeper in here that I am not bound. Uh, <laughs> thing in the in in this moment which is a very interesting thing to just have as like part of this is almost like a short story this is like like one of those elsewhere comics like where you get like a a one comic of a superhero in another world kind of thing like the the what might have been i think that's probably why it's such a good sequence compared to the other dream sequence it's like this self-contained little uh little egwene tale here in this other world can we talk about how good jordan i I think we bash on jordan's writing a lot but that was a really good way of they introduce new characters like she has her like the staff. Uh, what is the name of the Aes Sedai that wields the staff and is kind of like the, the keeper. keeper of the, yeah, yeah. It is just the keeper. 
So it's like they set up this new character, the Keeper, that's sympathetic and kind of backstabs her, but because she's so traumatized by being um, gentled or whatever the, the yeah. is it the, it's the male equivalent. What's the female stilled. equivalent? I think still. Yeah, yeah, so she's, she's stilled, and then she's like given no other choice. And it's really dark having the 13 that betray her. And it's just, like you said, it's a full short story, introduces new characters, levels up Egwene, but makes you very familiar with what's going on it eases you all into it and then gets very chaotic but it's it's really well written for like not even being a full chapter because it's one of three i don't know it, it was really well done I, I, so far i think that's the most impressive writing he's done in terms of setting up a whole new environment uh uh-huh. a character well into the future and then also introducing new characters all in the span of like less than a chapter yeah and i like that um they make her catch on really fast to the like the numbers of things so, mm-hmm. you know, we we know now that the the number 13 is like really specific. Mm-hmm. Um but how are the like the dark friends supposed to be able to get at the people that can channel? Like I don't fully understand how is it like when you channel you like open yourself up and they can like travel through the magic or like I don't really understand. Yeah. And that's what they're saying that we don't get the all we know is that it's like 13 channelers channeling through 13 Merdral who are connected to the Dark One. And it, it, I guess it opens access to your soul and your soul can be changed. Your will can be changed. Your, your, your desires can be changed. And I think this is, I don't know if Jordan, we know from the first book, like, you know, Balsamon is trying to turn Rand. And then in book two, Bal, or book one and two, we get a lot of Balsamon being like, oh, it's whatever. If you die, I can still get you. Like, you're, you'll be mine, your soul. I'd rather have you alive. You're more useful yeah. to them. And in book two, he hints, he hints like, okay, enough of this. If you're not going to turn willingly, then then it can be done forcefully. And now we learn that there is a way to, this is, I guess, the, it seems like the current plan is to capture not only Rand, but also the other Taverin and uh, and possibly the Omerlin seat and, and twist their souls because your soul opens up to the one power and then you can be changed um, in the same way that you're changing the world that but it's it's vague it's it, so far we i don't think we know beyond there or at least i didn't catch it you, you two picked up on a lot of stuff i missed in these chapters yeah. but I, it it reminded me of the avatar state in the last airbender where uh-huh. in that scenario as they opened up they get like this force like he turns blue and has the white eyes and everything or she like depending on who it is um that individual lights up and is in this avatar state and during that state if they die they lose connection to all the other avatars though so they're like mm-hmm. in this fragile moment and they described it as like when you connect and you get that glowing state that's when to your point like kill it like a soul maybe or like something you're able to be tainted in that state so i don't know it felt like it was like a weakness to their power it's like and it can only be mm-hmm. done when they're actually i don't even know if they need to be tr- like activated because they were she was still they thought she was still unconscious when they were about to perform it yeah and you just have to be able- sooner than expected yeah. yeah which actually oh i guess that ties in with the the taint on Saiyadin then because it's sort of maybe it maybe it's the same kind of thing like the way that people who touch the male half of of the one power their minds ultimately wind up being twisted and and destroyed by it um if that is a similar principle to how it works uh, through that connection. But I guess like, okay, so when they they get the, the documentation from Varen mm-hmm. about Leandra and all the people she took, and they're talking mm-hmm. about it, and Nynaeve is like, I don't see anything fucking helpful in here. And then Elaine says like, oh, well, why did they pick these specific Aes Sedai? Mm-hmm. So I guess that makes me like wonder if that you almost need, if he has like, like the dark one almost has like a recipe. Like we yeah. need like <laughs> yeah. this specific, someone from this specific demographic and this specific thing. Like, what is it about them? I hope that they'll explain what mm-hmm. that was. Cause they made that like a whole scene. 
Um, but then it makes me also wonder, like, does it, is it focused? Like, mm -hmm. will, if they are able to, like, turn someone's soul or whatever, is it, like, a one-shot where you have to do it, like, one person at a time? Or can it be, like, you know, you get the right mix of whatever and you can do everyone? Because if they mm -hmm. if they can, you know, corrupt the souls of anyone that can channel, well, how many fucking Sianchen are there? Or whatever they're called. The, yeah, yeah. The seafarer people. So, mm. like, if they, if he potentially will have the ability to access that many people, then it's like, okay, bro yeah. is way more powerful. And, like, they should actually be kind of concerned that, like, this is happening. Because I feel like we don't, I mean, at least I don't really know what he's completely capable of at this point. Mm -hmm. Is it yeah. Egwene's theory about the 13 Black Aja? She or somebody else raises the possibility at the very end of these chapters, wait, they were chosen because there's no pattern between them she like they're all from different places they all have like different backgrounds appearances and there's two from every aja except for the one red who's unaccounted for because because it's like two from every aja and leandrin from the red and i think it's a Gwen who voices she thinks that that is done to be specifically because there are way more black aja in the tower and they don't want anyone to have a way of knowing who they are like they just took like a, as like a patternless sample is I think the conclusion that, that she draws here. Um, On top of that conclusion, kind of in the same chapter or paragraph, it's interesting that mm -hmm. she also notices that you need 12 plus one <laughs> to do the stilling. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of this dark kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you, you yeah, need yeah. 13 to do a lot of things. And it's, it's this dark connotation between the power the dark ones using is very similar to the power the Aes Sedai are using for their, their own, uh, I don't know, defense mechanisms or, or ways mm -hmm. of like keeping their society in order. You, you already brought it up, Dan, but I was reminded so hard of, I wonder how, whether these tropes were already established, but the Harry Potter connection, which we bring up all, like, you know, about half as often as the Lord of the, the Lord of the Rings one, the way that these kids are coming in at, at, at up to, you know, like they're there, you've got the, um, the, the rich aristocratic bully kids who, who have their look, look, look down, down on them coming in. You've got, um, Eliada, the, uh, the one from the highly suspect house slash Aja, who is just like constantly like, like, you know, like, I think that this is completely undeserved and you should be stripped and like put to work in the scullery for 10 years. Like really sh like sh the extent to which Elida just is Snape in the first couple of books uh, so, so far uh, with the same attitude and reaction to the main characters and their special treatment. And I don't, there, maybe there are earlier examples uh, of, of this, but this, or if there's just something in the water in the early 90s in, in, uh, in this vision of like, you know, the boarding school wizard tower, because it's the early, I mean, I, uh, you know, rereading the Earthsea books recently, that wizard, that magic academy is very different and doesn't really feel anything like this in terms of, uh, in terms of the, the ar archetypes. I mean, there's the wizard council thing going on but there's a lot of very specific aspects of the white tower the hunt for the dark friends the ajas that feel really reminiscent of hogwarts and i don't think that jk rowling had read wheel of time that i know as far as i know she, she like ne never come up i don't think it's in um that direct connection but it really does seem like there's something that was in the water that they're drawing from and i don't know why what that was around that time that because then there's other other '90s fantasy books that are really heavy on on this stuff too. In particular, I don't know. This is me like just thinking of like wondering because it's not that obvious. Like 
everyone read Lord of the Rings and therefore you've got all these books that are constantly (laughs) ripping from Lord of the Rings. It was so uh, foundational in mid-century fantasy. What is the connection for the for for this particular set of tropes, though, that this book is leaning into so heavily? I wonder because it feel I'm feeling a lot of those vibes, and yeah, that's it. I don't really have any more insight than that. <laughs> Just something to, that I'm going to be looking out for, trying to figure out what the connection is there. I think also just that like because you know you have that knowledge like we have that knowledge of these of these different universes like we're always going to find those pieces and then mm-hmm. like well this has been done you know 17 times so what yeah, makes yeah. this one different and i think like you know i even wrote i was looking for my note because i knew i wrote it down but i wrote down in so chapter 22 was when it was all happening and i literally wrote i'll shave my fucking head if elida uh if elida isn't a black Asia. And then, like she, she has, mm. uh, she sees her when she's t- um, the Emerlin seat as a Black Aja, and so some of it, it's like it's so kind of on the nose. At least for right now, like there could be, you know, yeah. bigger twists and stuff. But some of it feels so on the nose that it's kind of like this. It's you know, I'm rolling my eyes. It's fucking annoying. And then other stuff is like it's really, really good. And like you know, like Dan, you were saying, like that whole those scenes. Um, were really like really well written where like you felt completely immersed and then it also it just kind of like I mean I'm always going to find something to nitpick but it also kind of like pisses me off then that book one takes like 50% of the fucking (laughs) book to get going because like he can I mean all of it I have been enjoying the hell out of all of this but like we had to slog through so much to start getting into good shit and so so it's like give us more of the good shit and and all of this like you know people being way op and then having layers within layers and like yeah you know we i personally will shit all over this the entire time but it's because i'm enjoying it so much and i i care about it that it's making me have an opinion towards it when like (laughs) other stuff i can read and be like i don't care about any of that you know doesn't make a difference but i'm so invested in these characters enough to fucking hate some of them yeah it it is odd to me when you're going through that description keely i was like it's a good point that jordan's writing more than other authors i've read drastically improves over the span of three books and it's very odd to me you don't see that progression in a lot of mm. series they're usually yeah, pretty no. consistent in tone and narrative and style he and they often peak so in book between, one yeah it's it's very odd to me because it's like his first book is so rough so drawn out mm. has so much monotonous dialogue and repetitive sceneries and storylines and just really dull characters for a lot of it it's just like i don't like most of the aspects of the first book and then second one starts to intertwine more pers- like um main character perspectives and bring in more cast and kind of do more world lore and actually do more with the characters they have and then this third one is jumping around all the time with new character perspectives he's fleshing out his main cast he's bringing mm-hmm. in some interesting side characters he's doing a lot more with them there's more there's more emotion there's more than just like back and forth of the same dialogue it almost feels like the second and and now the third most like second half of the the second book and then this whole book so far have been much more fleshed out than mm. the first book and kind of leaning into the second so i don't know what changed but he he becomes more personable and i just remember so much of the cringe dialogue in the first book from like <laughs> like the teams yeah. interacting with each other so repetitive and just so 
poorly written and just like one dimensional. And now they're like, he's giving them each their own perspective. You can see inside their head a little bit. He's fleshing these characters out. He's giving them abilities and cool like fantasy attributes and traits. He's been doing leaps and bounds each time. And I don't know why it's like, I don't know the span between each book when it was written, but <laughs> it's a lot more progress than you see with other authors most of the time. Yeah. And it's, it's really like a testament to how fucking well he could compartmentalize that each character feels like such their own personality. Um, like, yeah. you know, it'd be it's really hard to to jump from character perspective to character perspective when you have like, you know, a small group of characters. But he's got so many fucking people from so different, you know, potentially walks of life and like it is some of the dialogue we've been saying is fucking ridiculous. But <laughs> you know, that being said, like the older people come across as older and you know the mm -hmm. the core group is kind of younger but growing up. So they're in that like really starting to question everything and then some of them are kind of like off shooting to become their own person while others are kind of stuck in their ways still. And so like I've I've never felt at least since like book two where as I'm reading I'm like who the fuck are you again? Like mm. it's felt like people have ever yeah. he's really found the voice for the specific characters that he's writing. Agreed. Yeah, I'm, I'm impressed by that. It's a lot to juggle. And hopefully it continues next week. I did, uh, once again, really want to read on with the chapters, but held myself back uh, because we'll be getting into 26 to 30 next time. So uh, whether you're reading along or not, we'll do our best to continue to to keep you summarized if you're if you're just along for uh, for the non-reading ride. But yeah, this is this is, seems to be by consensus where things are getting real good. If you are if you are looking to dig into these books, um, this episode of Wattcast was produced by yours truly. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Caleb Wimble. Dan, where can people find you on the internet? On Twitter and Instagram under the handle Pansy Dan. Keely, what about you? On Twitter and Instagram at Keely underscore reads. Once again, you can find us all at Wattcast.net. And we are on socials, Twitter and Facebook at Wattcast Podcast. And uh, as always, remember, you can support the show on Patreon if you would like to get access to bonus episodes. And that'll be all for today. Thank you so much for listening, folks. Remember, this is not the ending. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the Wheel of Time. But this is an ending. Farewell. Farewell.